0: Hebrews 12, 18, and we're going to read down to verse 24 this morning. And there, the writer of Hebrews is bringing his argument about not wandering and continuing on in faith to close with these words. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure The order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As we come to consider um, this third and final section in spheres of worship, um, we want to talk this morning about corporate worship, which, and I want to remind us of the quote that I read at the outset, and I'm going to read it again, the J.I. Packer wrote in his book on the Puritans, Packer makes this point. Of these three, private, family, and public worship, or corporate worship, Packer says, Public worship is the most important. David Clarkson was entirely typical when preaching on Psalm eighty-seven two under the title, Public Worship, to be preferred before private, argued from Scripture that the Lord is most glorified by public worship. There is more of the Lord's presence in public worship. Here are the clearest manifestations of God. There is more spiritual advantage to be got in the use of public ordinances. And public worship is more edifying. Now, that's a bold statement, and I argue that I'm not sure I, I entirely agree that it's more important. I think they are all equally important. But there is an emphasis laid on corporate worship in the Bible that should take us back and give us a uh, pause to ask Is this what I am moving toward every week? Every week is the highlight of my week. Now, and we'll get into the Lord's Day, we'll get into the Sabbath. As we consider this, there's a sense in which every week is moving to the Lord's Day, and there's a sense in which every week is flowing from the Lord's Day. Both are true. We are being carried, the psalmist says, from strength to strength. I think that that may be an allusion to weekly gathering of the saints together, being strengthened under the ministry of the word, being carried on to glory. Everyone appears before God in Zion. And it's hard to read the Bible and not see the emphasis that's placed on corporate worship. God places this this weighty emphasis on the gathered assembly, not on small groups, as nice as they are, not on... Private devotions, as important as it is, there's actually very few places where private worship is is set out in scripture. We saw the few that it is. And family worship does not take the front seat. It's not in the driver's seat. You know, too many families today, there's a trend where family worship is becoming worship of the family. And people that are taking it seriously are putting it in the driver's seat. And yet, in the Bible, corporate worship, public worship, is in the driver's seat. We see this unfold through all of Scripture. And so what I want to do today, I want to briefly talk about a few things in Hebrews 12, and then I want to give us sort of a biblical theology of corporate worship. And then in the next two lessons together, we'll talk more about specifics, how to benefit our role, my role, how we get the most out of it. But notice that here in Hebrews 12, The writer of Hebrews really gives us a biblical theology of public worship. He takes us back to Mount Sinai, and he says to the new covenant assembly, you've not come to that mountain to worship, where the holiness of God um, kept the people from his presence in many respects, representing the, the perfections and the righteousness and the holiness and even the terror of the Lord, but you've come into the heavenly temple. You've come to the heavenly Mount Zion. You've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. That's been his big argument. You've come to a better mountain. You've come as a gathered assembly. Now, one of the interesting things is that what God does in redeeming Israel out of Egypt is that he doesn't redeem them as individuals. This is an enormous point There's going to be writers that you'll read, some of whom I think are are less than helpful, that will say we've overemphasized individual salvation, we've underemphasized corporate, the, the gathered, representative way God works with his church collectively. I think that they're right. I think evangelicalism by and large did so emphasize individual personal salvation that in the 20th century, corporate worship was minimized. I wonder, and I'm just asking this out loud, I wonder if that doesn't play into the fact why so many struggle to desire being together on the Lord's Day. Um, I have a friend who often says that he, he finds himself frustrated because when people go on vacation in his church, he says they take a vacation from God. They don't make it a priority to find a local church to gather together with God's people elsewhere in a worship. That should be a priority. Now, what we see in scripture is that God is doing something with a gathered assembly. He redeems Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, but he redeems them out of idolatry. This is a hugely important point. When God redeems Israel out of Egypt, we're told there's little illusions as the scriptures unfold that they worshiped. Demon gods in Egypt. Now we know that they worshipped other gods because they make an idol at the foot of the mountain. (laughs) They didn't they didn't just decide, hey, we'll make an idol now that God's not coming down to us and Moses is not coming back. They they were worshiping other gods in Egypt. They were not just enslaved. To Pharaoh, they were enslaved to sin. And what God does when he redeems Israel is he redeems them out of both physical and spiritual bondage. Now, that doesn't mean every Israelite was redeemed. We know that. We know that only a remnant really spiritually trusted in God and his salvation. But God was redeeming them from the bondage of idolatry. And the first thing that he does when he brings them out of Egypt is he brings them to the mountain to be a worshiping community. And that is hugely significant. From the beginning of the Old Covenant Church's experience of redemption, that typical redemption, God is creating a worshiping community. And I think the argument of the writer of Hebrews with regard to Israel in the Old Testament was don't wander, because if you wandered from the gathered assembly in the wilderness, you would die. You would That's a picture of apostasy, the wilderness background, Israel in the wilderness, and and those points that the writer of Hebrews is making. And notice back in chapter 10, turn over to Hebrews 10, verse 24. Notice the writer says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting, literally, the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, Drawing near. So in this book in which Israel is set out and the new Israel, in contrast, the two worshiping communities, we are told that the the chief injunction is do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, where did the idea of corporate worship come from? It didn't start with Israel and it doesn't start in the new covenant era. Turn back, if you would, to to Genesis chapter 4. A very interesting verse at the end of Genesis 4 where God has just given us the covenant line of Seth. He has replaced Abel, as it were. Christ is going to come from this line. This is the line of the Redeemer. This is part of Jesus' genealogy. The seed of the woman is going to come organically through this genealogical line. And notice that at the end of telling us about all of these um, People early about the history of Cain and Abel. I'm sorry. Notice what um, notice what Moses writes in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another, literally seed, Zerah instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord now. There is no way that this is the first time people prayed because we had Cain and Abel sacrificing before this. Jonathan Edwards actually and I think he's right, um, in History of the Work of Redemption says that this verse is highlighting this is the first time that men collectively came together to call on the name of the Lord. This is the this is the beginning of public worship. And there's something Either God commanded that or there was something intuitive about believers on the earth at that time who were waiting for the promised redeemer, Genesis 3.15, that they should be coming together and they should be worshiping together and calling on the name of the Lord together. The rest of the Bible is an unfolding of this. In fact, I would argue that if you, if you challenge yourself to go through scripture, 99.9% of everything about worship is public and corporate and collective in nature in the Bible. And the Bible ends with corporate worship in heaven, with a people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language, a multitude too great to number standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out, Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and power and blessing, for you have redeemed us to God from your blood and you have made us a kingdom and priest, you have made collectively God's people, kings and priests unto our God. And so the Bible starts, if Edwards is correct, I think he is, there in Genesis four, twenty-six, with the idea of God wanting his people to be together. God clearly organizes them to be together in the Abrahamic covenant. He redeems them under Moses' leadership and brings them as a worshiping community to the mount. The rest of Israel's history is about who they're worshiping, how they're worshiping, their heart in worship, their idolatry in worship, and then Jesus comes. And Jesus doesn't individualize salvation. Jesus saves individuals by his death on the cross, but he dies for all those chosen in him. And every New Testament epistle is written to a church gathered together. One of the, the clearest places you see the gathered nature, turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 11. I read every week from this when we do the Lord's Supper. And notice, and I won't read all of these for you, but notice verse, and I'll just tell you, I think there are five references to coming together in 1 Corinthians 11. I, think, I believe there are five Notice verse 17 and 18, Paul is correcting the problem. Some of the rich people were coming, they were eating, and they were getting drunk on the wine when they should have been waiting for the poor people in the church. They were going ahead and they were indulging themselves. And Paul says, Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? And he's correct, that's the problem. They are they're not feeding on Christ, they're just drinking, they're getting drunk. This is at church, they're getting drunk at church. This is why we use little thimbles with the wine and new covenant. That is why we mo- churches move to thimbles um, as a preventative caution because people have the same hearts as the Corinthians did. And, um, but notice what Paul says to them in verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Notice verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? And so Paul is going to emphasize that what happens, what's happening in the church, is happening in the church as a gathered community worshiping God. Um, this is one of the reasons, and we'll get into the elements of worship more Next week. But it's one of the reasons why we have a call to worship at New Covenant. What is done before that is technically not part of the worship. The call to worship and the benediction sort of cap off. This is the official coming togetherness of the church. This is the church purposefully coming together, coming into God's presence. God is calling us into his presence, just like he brought Israel to the mountain. And And here's one of the beautiful thoughts I want to give you this morning about corporate or public worship. Hebrews 12 tells us that you are not just gathering together in this little church plant in Richmond Hill, Georgia, but you are gathering together with the General Assembly and the saints who have gone before us. And we are gathering in worship in the new covenant to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the blood of sprinkling and to angels and archangels and to godly men and women who have gone before us who are now perfected in glory. Their souls set free from the bondage of sin and corruption and they are crying out to Jesus in worship. They are praising God the Father in worship and we are gathering together with that. We are gathering together with them in worship. There are actually some who take the verse in Hebrews 12 at the beginning since, therefore, we have so great a cloud of witnesses, most take that to be the witness of the Old Testament saints who are trusting Christ before us. But there are there are some, and, and it's possible, they um, believe that we are being looked at as we worship by the angels and the saints in heaven who are worshiping. Because clearly, notice what he says. Notice in Hebrews chapter 12, um, where he says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched, but notice what he says. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, verse twenty-two, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's writing saints in the first test in the first century. He's writing saints in the first century, and he's saying, You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is one of the reasons why we don't focus on earthly Jerusalem because the New Testament says that there's already a heavenly Jerusalem. Notice the city of the living God to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly. And there's there's that idea, verse 23, to the assembly, to the church, the ecclesia of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So, so this is why... David Clarkson and all the Puritans would say what they said about public worship. This is why Packer writes that it's the most important, arguable how we put that, it is where everything is moving and it is the greatest experience that we have as believers. I have a friend who we talk about evening worship because we'll start evening worship this fall and, um, and that sort of died off We'll get into that. We'll talk about morning and evening worship, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say. Um, but he's pastored this church for decades, and he said, I have taught the people of God that they should want to be together, and they should be there gathered together, worshiping together. If the church is calling, if God is calling his people to worship morning and evening, that they should they should be there, they should want to be there, and he's... And, and He gets 50% or 60% come out or 40%. And uh, he says, now I just tell him, listen, you should come tonight because we're going to have somebody very special here tonight. Jesus is going to be here. We're going to have somebody very special here tonight. Jesus will be here. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When we gather together, Jesus is there. We are coming to Christ. We have The most important person in the universe is in our midst when we gather together. And that's a guarantee that what we are doing is we are coming into the presence of Jesus Christ. He's with us. He stands as, as the high priest and the king among the lampstands. That's the picture in Revelation. When John writes the seven churches, he says, I saw one standing among the seven lampstands. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He had a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus Christ calls his people together. He proclaims his word what we said in the sermon last Sunday was that when the word is preached by men that God has appointed and the gospel is proclaimed that the bible actually says Jesus is speaking not it doesn't say when the word is read it is true but in a special way when the word is preached paul says how can they call on him whom they have not heard how can they hear without a preacher how can they preach unless they're sin? And then in Ephesians, Paul says, He, Christ, came and preached peace to you. Now, that's one of the things I love when I, um, when I, I f- and usually when I feel like I preach the worst sermon, and, and someone comes up to me and they say, either I didn't want to be at church and I'm so thankful I came, or I really felt like the Lord was speaking to me this morning. The Lord really does speak to his people in the preaching of the word, especially in the preaching. And that happens in the context of the gathered assembly. I get to sit under preaching. I get to worship as a recipient of preaching maybe four times a year. It's one of the hard things about being a pastor. It's very different. I am fed as I preach to people, but there's something very different that happens when I sit under the preaching of the word. And at our last presbytery meeting, um, there were maybe 30 of us. And um, a friend of mine in Augusta who's a pastor, he opened his church and and he preached out of, um, don't tell me Travis, this will come to me, he preached out of the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi, and it was like water running over my soul. And that's the experience that God wants his people to have as Christ is proclaimed in the gathered assembly. That's why these should be the highlights of our week. Now, I want to move, and I know we're covering a lot of theology very quickly this morning. I want us to consider the idea of the Lord's Day specifically, because someone could say, well, we can, we can have a small group on Tuesday night, and that's coming together. And we could, we could have a women's Bible study on a certain morning, and that's coming together, isn't it? How do we know that when Paul says, when you come together— he is hes intimating on a certain day. What do we do with the Sabbath? How does all this kind of dovetail? Well, um, first of all, I'd, I'd say 1 Corinthians 16 1 is a very important verse. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 16 1 and 2. Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth, of whom he's re- already told, when you come together, this is the same church. So, He's told us in chapter 11, over and over, when you come together. And so then the natural question would be, when do they come together? And notice here in chapter 16, 1 and 2, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also were to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, while this is descriptive and not prescriptive, it, it is nonetheless very revealing that they were meeting together on the first day of the week it 's also clear that after jesus 's resurrection, the disciples were gathered together. If you read the end of the the gospel narratives eight days later, and so they're they're gathering together on the first day of the week it's very clear now some say well that's because the Jewish synagogues kicked them out and they couldn't worship on Saturday. If you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, that's okay, but I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. I don't think the only reason why they met on the first day of the week was because the Jewish synagogues kicked them out and they couldn't be participatory on that day in worship with the Jewish people. Um, there is a day. There is a day. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. There is one day in which God expects his people to, be worshiping him collectively, publicly. Notice John is giving the revelation that Christ has given to him. And he says there in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches. Now, my friends who are anti-sabbatarian, my best friend is not a Sabbatarian, is not Sabbatarian, he will say, well, every day is the Lord's day. I get it. Every day is the Lord's day. Every day belongs to the Lord. We should live every day for the Lord. But this is a specific day the Apostle John has said is set apart. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, not on one of every day, which is the Lord's day, but on the Lord's day. Now, where does that idea come from? That idea comes out of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Now, let me see if I have enough time to do this. I try to give you some heavy theology in 10 minutes and then questions. Um, Isaiah 58, don't turn there, but um, the prophet says, the Lord says, through the prophet to the people of God, if you turn away your foot uh, from doing what you want on my Sabbath, on the holy day of the Lord, he says, on the holy day of of the Lord, the Yom Yahweh in Hebrew, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. On the Old Covenant, that was the Old Testament Sabbath, that was Saturday. And it's also interesting that that goes back to creation and it points to consummation. There was a Sabbath day, the seventh day, God set it apart, sanctified it. That was a day for Adam to worship and rest. It was not a distinctively Jewish Um, prescription jesus says um, man was not made for the sabbath but the sabbath for man he doesn't say the jews were not made for the sabbath but the sabbath for jews so that's a mistake some make Um, the sabbath day is the day that god is foreshadowing the eternal rest that we will have in glory in that heavenly worship room in that gathered assembly worshiping God and the lamb and the writer of Hebrews draws that out for us when he tells us there remains a Sabbath rest there's a rest God has appointed a rest for those who would believe in Jesus Jesus has secured that rest I've also always found it fascinating that Jesus finishes the work of redemption just like he does the work of creation so Jesus creates everything looks back and says it is good he finishes the work of redemption, he looks back and he says, It is finished. I think there's an intentional parallel. And then at creation, he rests. He sets this day aside for worship and for that, to, to show Adam that there's something better. There's an eternal rest to enter into. And then Jesus rests from the work of redemption in the tomb on the Old Covenant Sabbath, the last Old Covenant Sabbath. He rests from the work of redemption. And he rests all that day, and he rises up on the first day of the week. and he ushers in the new creation and he brings with him all of the glory that he has. He has merited by his life, death and resurrection. He has won that rest for his people. I love John Bunyan's statement. Um, "He has given me uh, rest from his sorrows and life from his death. He has given me rest by his sorrows and life." from his death. And so Jesus is our Sabbath rest, and we don't want to skip over that. He's also the Lord of the Sabbath. John's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one that says, come unto me, and I'll give you rest for your souls. And yet there's still a day. The Bible ends. There's still this day. Now, how do we get from the seventh to the first? I think that the clearest way of understanding this is that In the law, there were these foreshadowings, there were these festivals, and then these Sabbaths, which Paul in Colossians says were shadows, they're done, substance is Christ. So Sabbaths, there were all these festival Sabbaths, and it seems odd that several of those fell on the eighth day, not on the seventh day. And if you were a good Jew, and you were a believing Jew, you might ask, okay, this has something to do with redemption, because Jesus is going to say, he fulfills all the festivals. And I know that the Sabbath is intimating something better, but it's always been on the seventh day since creation. Why is God giving us these eighth day Sabbaths? I think if you think about a seven day work week, what is the first day? It denotes beginning. What's the eighth day? would... A rebeginning, a recreation, creation new creation. I think that that's taught everywhere. I believe that the baby boys were circumcised in Israel on the eighth day, not because clotting was the highest, but because the eighth day denoted new creation. And God was going to bring new creation through the circumcision of Jesus. So it would make sense that this, that the shift from the seventh day to the eighth, which is eight and one on a seven-day work week, that's the same day, It's the Lord's Day. It's the redemptive historical shift. And I think that's why we find everyone in the New Testament worshiping collectively on the Lord's Day. Now, there's also something interesting about the phrase the Yom Yahweh, the Day of the Lord. And that is that when the prophets speak of the Day of the Lord, they often speak of that last day. So they're often speaking about the Day of Judgment and Salvation so if you went through Joel, if you went through the other prophets in the Old Testament, you would find that the day of the Lord is either a day of anticipating redemption or it's a day of anticipating judgment. And that means that what we do, and, I, and this is where I want to tie this together, when John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he is, he is worshiping God in prison on Patmos. And on the Lord's day, he, he he's worshiping and and and. Yet, at the same time, he is giving us a vision of consummation. And I think that the two tie together so that what we do here on the Lord's Day is helping us anticipate. I do not anticipate heaven so much as I do on the Lord's Day. When I preach to God's people, it helps me anticipate and desire that final day of salvation and redemption. I think that it's intended to do that, that the two are tied together, the Lord's Day, the Holy Day of the Lord, and the Day of the Lord. It's the same phraseology in the Hebrew. I think it has that biblical theology, that, that connection that should make us desire that. The Puritans would often call the Sabbath, and, and by Sabbath we mean the, the principle of one in seven, work six days, worship one. They would often call the Lord's Day the feast day of the soul. The feast day of the soul. And so, I don't know if any of you, I, I'm, I've kind of been convicted lately. I'm a big foodie, and I always think about Jesus saying they ate, they drank, they married, they were, and I'm like, maybe I like food too much. I like really good, usually expensive food. Um, the Lord's Day should be a day of you going to the best bistro to eat the best meal, and, and if you can go twice, even better. <laughs> if you can go twice to eat the best portion and have your soul fed, it's a feast day for the soul. Um, I'll tell you this as I, as I walk us out of this and then take questions, and I've told you this in the past, Joel Beakey really helped me with this. He said just in passing once that he gets his kids up every Sunday, and he says to them, or when they were little, he would say to them, what day is it today? Today? And they'd say, and he had taught them this, it's the best day of the week. And I've implemented that with our kids now as they're young. And if I ask them, what day is today? They say it's the best day of the week. It's the Lord's Day. Um, I had, I'm going to share something personal and sweet that happened this morning. I walked in to to, um, greet the boys this morning, and we're trying to teach our kids about giving back to the Lord um, on the Lord's Day. And Judah was sitting up in his bed and he looked despondent and he looked uh he looked discouraged and I was like, Judah, what's wrong? And and I saw he had something in his fist and he I said, What's in your fist? And he had two dimes and, and he was like, I can't find the rest of my money and so I said You slept with your money and said, yeah, i got to give it to the Lord. It was really sweet. It was one of the sweetest things I've ever experienced. But those are sort of the things we should see how beautiful the Lord's Day is. Not see it as, oh, I can't go out on my boat. I can't go do this. I can't go do that. Obviously, there are things God says don't work. Don't make other people work. There are obviously negations in the commandment. But we should look at it as a delight. Call the Lord's Day a delight. The feast day of the soul, the best day of the week.